chapter number three. We'll start reading in verse number one. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces, all the influencers of the day, anyone that had a lot of followers on social media, they were invited to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then, and herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded. Everybody say commanded. This wasn't an option. It was a command. O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music. If you're wondering what all those instruments are, I don't know, look them up later, but there are all kinds of instruments. You fall down and worship. Everybody say worship. The golden image of Nebuchadnezzar, the king has set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Today, for a few minutes, I want to speak to this subject this morning, pressure points pressure points. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer together. Lord, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for this time that we can come together and to worship you. Lord, thank you that we can have your perfect, infallible, inerrant, inspired word that we can look to. And Lord, I pray that for the next few minutes, we will be encouraged and edified uh, through the scripture. God, I pray that you would give me uh, the words to say that would be beneficial for us. I pray that we would understand how we can respond to the culture that is around us and how we can reach the culture around us for the good news of the gospel. And we love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. my son, Luke and I, we like to wrestle. And at night, sometimes if I'm sitting on the floor or laying on the floor, he will come and just jump on top of me and he'll want to start uh, wrestling me. And so uh, recently uh, we were kind of wrestling and I was teaching my son Luke some pressure points. And uh, Brian, if you can come up here for a second, let's give it up for Brian this morning. Brian helps lead our usher ministry, does an amazing job. Let's give it up for our ushers. And so I was teaching my son some pressure points. Brian, can I demonstrate this this morning? I promise no one will be hurt in the making of this illustration. Yes. Okay. So a couple of uh, pressure points, maybe like one right here on the thumb, if you push that pretty good right there. Yeah, pressure point. Uh, sometimes another one up here right on the shoulder, it can be a pressure point. Uh, a, a good one is right here behind the ear. You push on that one. That's certainly a pressure point. I, I was asking my son, I was teaching him some of these and I said, do you know any pressure points? And he said, yeah, I got your nose. <laughs> I said, that is... It's not a pressure point. He's kind of missing, uh, missing the purpose there. Thank you, Brian. Let's give it up for Brian one more time. When Katie and I first got married,
We moved into a home that was certainly a fixer-upper, and uh, there was a lot of things that we had to fix in that household. When we went in there, there was bugs everywhere and grease all over the floors, and, and uh, one thing uh, that was always bothering me in that house is on the outside of the house, the stucco had a lot of stain and, and, uh, and uh, like a black soot, it looked like, that was on the, on the stucco, and so I decided one day that I was going to take care of that, and so I borrowed a pressure washer. And I decided to pressure wash the side of the house to clean it up. And at that point in my life, I had not a lot of experience with pressure washers. And at this point in my life, I don't have a lot of experience with pressure washers. But uh, back then, certainly I did not. And I decided that I was going to take care of this. And I cranked that thing up as high as it would go. And I got about an inch from the I was like, I'm going to clean this real good. And I ended up spraying off about half the stucco of that entire house, and uh, just stucco flying everywhere, and uh, I certainly messed up the side of that house, but I learned something, that that pressure washer is very powerful. You know, in our lives, the truth is today that when it comes to pressure, if there's one thing that we can know with a certainty about pressure, is that pressure is powerful. And today, as we consider the landscape of our culture, as we consider the current climate of our culture, what we often feel is pressure coming from every side. In our culture today, there's typically two types of pressure. There is the pressure to conform. Hey, you need to look like us. You need to act like us. You need to talk like us. You need to dress like us. There, there's a pressure to conform, a pressure to pattern our lives after the lifestyle of the world. In fact, uh, there's this progression that we see taking place in the world, in the culture today, where the world's message used to be tolerate, tolerate us. But then that message changed, and now the message is celebrate. You need to celebrate our lifestyle. You need to celebrate what we're doing. Uh, but it's transitioned from tolerate to celebrate to now it's participate. You, you need to do exactly what we do. You need to be one of us. You need to dress like us. You need to act like us. There is a pressure from the culture, a pressure to conform. But there's a second type of pressure, and that is the pressure to perform. Often we feel this pressure from the world, like, I have to measure up. I have to make a certain amount of money. I have to have a certain amount of followers on social media. I have to have a certain career path, and uh, I constantly am trying to measure up. I feel this pressure to not only conform to the world, but I feel this pressure to perform. And so we feel often in life this pressure, and I want you to know that pressure from the outside always reveals what is on the inside. When we have pressure that is coming from all directions from the world, eventually what is on the inside will come out. And so today the question that I have is how will we handle the pressure? How will we handle the pressure that is constantly coming from the culture, the pressure to conform, the pressure to perform? Paul talked about this pressure in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 8. He said, for we would not, brethren, have you to be ignorant of the trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure. Uh, Paul said, I felt this unbelievable pressure in the ministry, pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Paul said the life of serving Jesus often comes with pressure. We feel this heaviness, this pressure uh, from the culture today. Now, we come to Daniel chapter 3. And this is a very familiar passage of scripture. Uh, these three Hebrew boys were faced with insurmountable pressure. Uh, they had to bow down to this image or else they would lose their lives. This was uh, certainly an intense moment, intense pressure. The pressure uh, was on. Now, interestingly, uh, in Daniel chapter 3, Daniel is not here. Uh, Daniel 
Uh, in fact, uh, this is the only uh, narrative in the book of Daniel where Daniel is not present, right here in Daniel chapter 3. Most commentators believe that Daniel had perhaps been promoted in the Babylonian Empire. And King Nebuchadnezzar perhaps sent him on a diplomatic mission somewhere. And so now here in this moment, Daniel is not here, but he left his three friends behind, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And now here they are without their leader. Here they are without Daniel. They can't live in his shadow. Now they have to make a decision to stand up for their faith in the midst of this culture. Can I tell you today that ultimately your faith comes down between you and God? It's not about what your parents think. It's not about what your upbringing was. It's not about what you see on YouTube or what you hear on TikTok. Ultimately, your faith is between you and God. And there ought to be some followers of Jesus that would say, it doesn't matter what the pressure is from the world around us. I am going to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords because he is worthy of my praise and worship. And it doesn't matter what anyone says around me. My faith is between me and my God. By the way, uh, there will come a time in life when someone asks you for the reason of the hope that lies within you, and you must be, be prepared to give an answer. Uh, Peter talks about this, that there will be the times in life when someone comes to you, hey, why do you believe this, and why do you stand for this, and what do you think about this that's going on in the world? And when someone comes to you, uh, you can't uh, rely on someone else in that moment. Uh, your faith is between you and God. And so here are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel is not here, and they are faced with this insurmountable pressure from the culture. You have to bow down to this image, and this is what we see uh, is taking place in Daniel chapter 3. And so as we uh, navigate this passage, today. Uh, I want us to see four ways that we can thrive under pressure. Would that be all right this morning? I want us to see four ways that we can thrive under pressure. Uh, number one, I want to encourage you to fight for your worship. Fight for your worship. Let's pick it up in verse number one. It says this, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof of six cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. And so right off the bat, uh, Nebuchadnezzar decides to build this golden image. This was really in response to the dream that he had in chapter number two. He decides that he's going to build this golden image of, of himself. It was 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide in the plain of Dura. This meant that you could see this statue, this image from miles away. It would have been very impressive uh, to glance upon. And so Nebuchadnezzar builds this image. Notice verse number two. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather the princes and the governors and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, to all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And so Nebuchadnezzar sets up this golden image, this 90-foot tall statue, and he invites all the prominent influencer, influencers of the day to come and to be a part of this dedication service. Notice verse 4. Everybody stay with me. Yeah. Verse 4. Then an herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded... O people, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so what we see is that the king orchestrates this worship service for himself, uh, for this golden image. I think it's interesting that this little worship service that we see in verses 1 through 4 involved both sight and sound. Look at this impressive golden image, but also listen to this music. It involved both sight and sound. And I believe there's an important principle here for us. As we navigate Babylon, as we navigate a godless culture, we have to be very careful about the things that we look to and the things that we listen to. 
in Babylon, you have to be very careful about the content that you consume, the things that you are looking uh, to, the things that you are listening to. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, I want you to look at this. It looks very impressive. I want you to hear all of this. And this was a very immersive experience. I remember several years ago, I was uh, out golfing in in uh, Arizona, and it was very hot. It was above 100 degrees, and and uh, we were out there golfing, and I was trying to stay cool any way that I could. And in the golf cart, there was a little ice chest, and it was filled with ice. And so kind of throughout the day, I was just grabbing some of that ice, and, and I was eating it, and I was trying to stay cool, and I was just eating the ice throughout the day. Uh, when we came uh, down to the last hole and we finished the round, uh, I happened to notice on the side of that ice chest, there was a little description that says, chemical ice, not for consumption. <laughs> And the entire day, I was just eating that ice, eating that ice, enjoying it, not knowing that it was harmful for me. But I want you to know it looked good and uh, it seemed good, uh, but it was not good for me. Can I remind you today that not everything that looks good, not everything that sounds good is good for you. You need wisdom that comes from above to say, you know what, the world is communicating this and it sounds okay and it's a plausible sounding argument. But you know what, I think the Bible has something different to say about this. Therefore, I will align my convictions not with the culture, but with the word of God. Be very careful about what you look to and what you listen to. And so this image was set up and he now commands them to bow down. Uh, But there's a word that is very uh, prominent that is very important for us to, to recognize in verse number five. Notice it. He says, fall down and then worship. Worship. I want you to know today that the real battle that took place that day on the plain of Dura was a worship battle. The real war that is taking place in our culture today is a worship war. There's a lot of skirmishes. There's a lot of battles. There's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of fighting in politics, a lot of fighting in our country, a lot of division. There's a lot of skirmishes that are taking place. But the real war is about your worship. What the enemy wants more than anything is your worship. In fact, one author said that that every human conflict is ultimately theological. At the root of every conflict, there is a theology issue, and the enemy wants your worship. Why? Because your worship, worship is described as anything that you ascribe worth or value to. Now, you might be thinking, well, I would not bow down to a golden image in the plain of Dura. But please hear me today. We all bow to something. We might bow to a career. We might bow to a relationship. We might bow to a hobby or to a passion. We might bow down to all kinds of things, but make no mistake about it. We are all unceasing worshipers, and we all bow to something. Uh, this is why the Bible says in the New Testament, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 14, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, flee, everybody say flee, flee, flee run from, flee from idolatry. And so anything that takes the priority in our lives, anything that takes first place in our lives has the opportunity to become an idol in our lives and will cause us to drift and the enemy is stealing our worship. Now, uh, all throughout the Bible, is it okay if we go a little bit deeper for a moment today? All throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are three categories of idols that we see. Uh, The idol of possessions, materialism, covetousness, I want that, and it can become idolatrous. There's the idol of pleasure, uh, perhaps lust or some sensual activity and, and uh, uh, our desires that might get out of control, and so we make an idol of a pleasure. Or the idol of pride. We want to lift ourselves up. We want ourselves to, to, to be more prominent. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And so we see all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, in fact, uh, every temptation that the devil gave Satan in Matthew chapter uh, number four, uh, it was in regards to these three things, possessions, pride, and pleasure. And this is what we see in the plain of Dura. 
the image was set up, and certainly it was the idol of pride. It was a 90-foot statue of one person. He was thinking pretty highly of himself to build that statue. It was an idol of possessions. It was plated and made of gold. It was very costly, very ex expensive. And then we see the idol of pleasure. This was a, this was a very uh, immersive experience with the sight and with the sound. And so what we see is all three of these idols are present in this moment. The enemy was trying in every which way to distract and to steal worship. Romans chapter 1 verse number 25 says this, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Do you see today how the enemy wants your worship? He wants you to be distracted in life, to start worshiping the created thing rather than the creator of all things. And there ought to be some followers of Jesus that would say, you know what? I'm not giving the enemy my worship. I'm not giving the enemy my worship when it comes to possessions, uh, pride, or pleasure, or philosophy, or politics. My worship is reserved for the one true king. His name is Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy of our worship. Make no mistake about it today. The enemy is after your worship. He wants you to ascribe uh, worth to the things of this world. And so number one, if we're going to thrive under pressure, we have to fight for our worship. Number two is this. We have to face the pressure. Face it. We can't run from it. We can't hide from it. We have to face the pressure. Now, not all pressure is created equal. Uh, yesterday... My kids had their first soccer games of the season. And uh, my youngest uh, daughter, she's in a soccer league where it's very young. It's like the, ver the very uh, introductory type of league where they don't really keep score. And, and uh, they all give each other high fives to the other team during the game. And they sit down and take breaks in the middle of the field. And, and, uh, and you know, so uh, Blakely was a little bit nervous. But I, I know that as a parent, like, th this is not very intense pressure. We're not even keeping score, right? Everybody is going to get a Capri Sun after the game. Everything's going to be uh, a-okay. And uh, not all pressure is created equal, but here we see uh, the pressure from the culture is very real. It's very intense. And often the pressure that you will feel at work, the pressure that you will feel in your marriage, uh, the pressure that you will feel in life is very heavy. It's very real and it's very intense. I want you to see it starting in verse 6. Everybody still with me? And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. How many of you would agree with me? That's some intense pressure. I mean, it's life or death, right? There was no religious exemption. There was nothing you could sign to get out of this. This was like, you will bow or you will burn, okay? It was pretty black and white. This was intense pressure. Now, this leads really to the heartbeat of this message today, and really perhaps the heartbeat of this series. When it comes to the pressure of living in Babylon, you can build your life based on external pressure or you can build your life based on internal principle. People everywhere today are building their lives on external pressure. Whatever my relatives are pressuring me to do, whatever my family is pressuring me to do, whatever the culture is pressuring me, pressuring me to do, uh, I don't want to have conflict. I don't want there to be uh, people that don't like me, so I will cave and give in to that pressure. You can build your life on external pressure, or you can build your life on internal principle based on the principles of God's word. Like Paul would say in the New Testament, but none of these things move me. How could Paul say none of these things move me? Because he was building his life on internal principle and not on external pressure. Now, the pressure that they were going to feel was intense. And I think it's important for us to kind of examine and dive deeper a little bit when it comes to this pressure from the world because it will help, help us uh, face the pressure. And so I want us to see three things about this pressure. Uh, first, this pressure was popular. It was popular. Everybody was doing it. I want you to see it starting in verse number 7. It says this, 
Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, everybody say all the people. Everybody was doing it. <laughs> you know, this is one of the most common tactics from the enemy. He will get everybody in your neighborhood, everyone in your workplace, everybody else is saying it, everybody else is doing it, all the people were doing it. This was the pressure that came in the form of popularity because everyone is doing it. I feel as though that I can go ahead and do it. Uh, there was an interesting uh, study done several years ago at James Madison University. Some psychologists got together and they were noticing a pattern of college students who were not married, who were uh, sleeping together at very high numbers, a very high rate. And so they decided to dig in a little bit deeper and to uh, survey some college students to kind of figure out what was going on. And what they dis discovered was that uh, many of the people, many of the college students that were uh, sleeping together uh, before marriage, they, they, they did not prefer that. They were saying uh, that they would actually prefer a committed monogamous relationship, but they were doing something else. In fact, when asked about their preferences, 95% of the female students and 77% of the male students said that they would choose uh, dating over hooking up, uh, committed relationship over just uh, hooking up. They prefer monogamy, but they were practicing immorality. And so the psychologist, psychologist at James Madison University decided to dig a little bit deeper. Why are they practicing something that they don't prefer? Uh, why do they prefer a committed relationship, but they're practicing something else? And so they started to ask some more questions. They started to dig a little bit deeper. And this is what the author of the article said, uh, Arnie Kahn. He said this. College students are very, here's his word, from a secular perspective, a secular article. College students are very conformist. Conformist. He said, because everybody else is hooking up, you assume that they do it because they like it. You do it to go along. He called it in this study pluralistic ignorance. Because everybody else is doing it, it must be okay. It must be enjoyable. If they're doing it, they must like it. Maybe I'll like it too. Maybe it'll make me feel better about myself. This pluralistic ignorance. Do you not see this is exactly what's happening in our culture today? Everyone else is doing this. Everyone else is bowing down. And this is often what the enemy will do. He'll say, look around. You're the only one that's not doing it. It must be okay. And so just because something is common doesn't mean that it is correct. And so this was a, a, a popular pressure. But also... This was a personal pressure. I want you to see the personal uh, nature of this, starting in verse number 8. It says this. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. Now, if you have a habit of underlining or marking in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline or circle that word accused. We'll come back to it. So they accused uh, the Jews. Verse number 9. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. O, o, thou, O king, has made a decree that every man shall hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, uh, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso shall not fall down and worship, uh, that he should be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now, you could read that exchange and think, man, those snitches, right? Snitches get stitches. Those tattletales, they went and told on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But that's actually not what is taking place. They're not tattling. They were uh, doing something far worse than that. The word accused in verse number eight is actually an Aramaic word, and it means to slander maliciously. 
they were not only attacking their decision to not bow, they were attacking their character. They were slandering them maliciously. Now, here's why I think that's interesting. If you remember last week in chapter number two, it was Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that were praying for the other rulers of Babylon. Do you remember that? And it was because of their prayers that they actually saved their lives. Their, their lives were on the line. They were going to die. But because Daniel and his friends prayed for them, they got to live. And how do they return the favor? by going to Nebuchadnezzar and slandering them maliciously. You know, often it's those that you help the most that have the potential to hurt you the worst. It's those people in life that you sacrifice your time, that you sacrifice your energy, that you sacrifice your love, and they turn around and they don't return the favor. And that is why you have to remember today that we do what we do, not for the audience of men, but for the audience of one. Because there will be those that you serve, there will be those that you pray for, there will be those that you love, and they don't return the favor. And it's in those moments you say, you know what, I wasn't ultimately doing it for them, I was doing it for the Lord. He is our motivation. And so here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're, they're, they're under the fire. They're facing the pressure. And this pressure is very personal. They were, they were being attacked on a personal level. Their character was being misaligned and misrepresented. But it was not only popular and personal. I want you to see also this pressure was persistent. Everybody still with me? The pressure was persistent. N notice it in verse 13. It says this. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage, Nebuchadnezzar had an anger problem, in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. And watch what he says in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, is it true? Now, that's an interesting question. You can almost hear a little bit of uh, tenderness from Nebuchadnezzar. Like, he, he, he was going to give them the benefit of the doubt. He, he, he brings them forward and he says, is it true? I believe in this moment when Nebuchadnezzar looks at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, is it true? I believe this was the greatest pressure that they faced. More than the pressure to take a stand and not bow down in the plain of Dura was this moment. Why? Because it's one thing to take a stand. It's another thing to stick to your stand when someone asks you. You know, it's one thing to take a stand, but then when someone starts to dig a little bit deeper and ask you more questions, sometimes we can falter off of that stand. Uh, for example, Peter certainly took a stand. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Peter withdrew his sword and he cut off the ear of Malchus. Uh, he took a stand in the garden. But a few hours later, when a teenage girl was asking him, hey, weren't you a follower of Jesus? What did he do? He denied Christ three times. It's one thing to take a stand. It's another thing to stick to your stand when people start asking you questions. And here Nebuchadnezzar, he looks at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, is it true? By the way, uh, this is a question that many people in culture will ask you when they find out about what you believe. Is it true that you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? Is it true that you go to church every single Sunday? Is it true that you give and tithe 10%? How do you do that in your budget? How does that even make sense? Is it true uh, that you believe what the Bible says about marriage and about the world? Is it true that you believe the Bible? Uh, the world will look at you and ask, is it true? Because from an outside perspective, it seems very unreasonable. It's unreasonable uh, to give our time, talent, and treasure to the Lord. It's unreasonable to turn the other cheek. It's unreasonable sometimes to uh, follow the commands of Scripture from a worldly uh, perspective. But I want to just remind somebody today that when it comes to worshiping the one that created you and that died for you and that loves you, it is always reasonable to serve Jesus. It is our reasonable service. I believe it's reasonable to come to church and to serve, and it's reasonable to give back to him. He's given us so much. And so when the world asks, is it true, we can stand with confidence and stick to our stand, uh, understanding that it is our reasonable service. Now, notice verse number 15. 
It says, now, if you be ready, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, he says, we will let bygones be bygones. In other words, he's giving them another chance. He says, you know, I kind of like you guys, and I really don't want to throw you into the fiery furnace, and so I'm going to give you another chance because King Nebuchadnezzar in his mind was so merciful and so gracious. I'm going to give you another chance, and if you bow down this time, verse 15, well, but if you worship not, you shall be cast in the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace, and who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? And so now we see that this pressure was persistent. Can I tell you and just remind you today that uh, you take a stand one day at work, just know that you'll have to take a stand again. <laughs> you, you resist the pressure one day, it's going to come back full force the next day. This is how temptation works. It comes back to us again and again and again. Uh, but uh, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God and we are operating according to God's word, uh, we can develop the strength within us to resist that temptation through uh, the Holy Spirit's power. And so this pressure was persistent. It kept on coming back. He gives them an opportunity. Now, this leads us to our third thought today. If we're going to face the pressure, number three is this. Focus on what you know. Focus on what you know. A lot of times when we're facing pressure from the culture, pressure from the world, we can get so discouraged by what we don't know. Uh, the uncertainty drives us uh, crazy sometimes, not knowing the outcome, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing uh, what I'm supposed to do. Uncertainty is always frustrating. Uh, there are times when my oldest daughter, lives, she'll come home from school and, and she'll say, Dad, can you help me with this homework? And certain times I can look at that homework and I think this is no problem at all. I'm, I'm great at third grade math. I can help you. I, I feel like a genius. Yeah, you just have to carry the one. And I can help her and it's no problem. But there have been times when she says, Dad, can you help me with my homework? And I read the instructions and I don't even understand the instructions, and it's in those moments when I say, Liv, I think mom really wants to help you tonight, so uh, go and ask mom. Uh, but it can be frustrating, and especially with my daughter, if she doesn't understand something, uh, she can get frustrated, and then I don't understand, so we're both getting frustrated. And uh, in life, uncertainty always leads to frustration. It's in those moments of uncertainty, when we don't know how it's going to play out, that as followers of Jesus, we must focus on what it is we do know based on the revealed will of God. A lot of times we focus on God's concealed will, that which we do not know. You know, who am I going to marry? Where are we going to live? And how much am I going to get paid? And, and we focus on that concealed will, that which we do not know. But what we should do is focus on his revealed will in his word, and he will take care of the concealed will. We have to focus. Are you tracking with me so far today? You have to focus on what you do know based on God's and that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, that's what they do. Now, I want you to see it starting in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we, everybody say we, are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, they said, we don't feel the need to defend ourselves. We're not worried about crafting the perfect response for you, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we are not uh, in a position that we feel like we need to defend ourselves. We're not careful to answer thee in this matter. I love how they had a united front. Did you notice how they said we? They said we. Uh, it wasn't like uh, they were kind of divided in this, like Meshach was like, Nebuchadnezzar, can I get a word with you in private uh, for a moment? They're thinking this, but I'm not thinking that. Uh, no, they were, they were united together in this front. In fact, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, every time they're mentioned in Scripture, it's always a collective unit. 
They're never mentioned by themselves. Why? They understood the power of community. They understood the power of standing together. They understood the power of serving the Lord together. What would happen if at Rock Hill Church we decided to stand together and to stick together? And when people get on our nerves, hey, it's okay because we are striving together for the faith of the gospel. Hey, there is power in community. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, They said, we are not careful. We're not going to defend ourselves in this moment. Notice verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Don't you love how they were confident in God's ability? They said, we believe that God can deliver. You can throw us in that fire, but we believe that God can deliver us from that fire. Uh, We believe that God is able and mighty to save, and if it's his will, uh, he will deliver us. But then they say this in verse 18. Notice it. But if not. But if not. Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Even if we die, we still trust the Lord. Even if we will die, we will not bow down. Even if you kill us, we will not serve these false idols. We will stand strong for the Lord. This is where real spiritual maturity comes. Even if God chooses not to deliver us from this situation, I will still trust him. It's like what Job said, even if God slays me, I will still put my trust in him. Even if God takes my life, I will still have faith in him. Real spiritual maturity comes when you can say, even if the test results are different than I wanted, I still believe God is faithful. Even if I don't get the raise, I'm praying for the raise, I need the raise, my family needs needs the raise. Even if I don't get the raise, God is still good. Even if this relationship is not restored on the level that I would like it to be restored, I I still believe that God is in control and that not only do I have faith in his ability, but I'm trusting in his sovereignty that he can see some things that I cannot see. They had trust in God's ability, but they also had faith in God's sovereignty. Even if he doesn't, I'm believing that God is good and we will not bow down. And, And Nebuchadnezzar did not like that answer. Nebuchadnezzar gets furious. And you know the story. You remember hearing it when you were young. He decides to turn that furnace up seven times hotter. And even the people that were getting close to the furnace were losing their lives because it was so hot. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he's in a rage and he decides, okay, I'm gonna throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. And that's exactly what he does. And this leads us to our last thought today. Do you have one more you this morning? When we are faced with insurmountable pressure, number four, find freedom in the fire. Notice it in verse 23. Find freedom in the fire. Verse 23 of our text. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished. He was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said to his counselors, did not we cast three men into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, true, okay. He answered and said, lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they have no hurt and the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Now, We're going to unpack these verses uh, more uh, in just a minute. But I want you to notice one thing before we go on. Notice verse number 23. Can everybody see it? Verse 23, there's a word there. They fell down bound. Everybody say bound. They went into the fire in chains, in cuffs, in ropes. They were bound. But then, notice verse number 25. He said, lo, I see four men 
loose. The fire didn't burn them. It actually freed them. Can I tell you today, they had more freedom in the fire than they did outside of the fire. Sometimes God will have you walk through the furnace of affliction, not to harm you, but to help you. Sometimes God will have you walk through the furnace of affliction, not to limit you, but to actually liberate you. Sometimes we have to go through a difficult season, a trial, a fiery season, so that God can free us from some things that are holding us back. Sometimes we despise the trial, we despise the struggle. But God says there's a purpose that you can't always see. And you can discover and find freedom even within the fire, even within the struggle. Isaiah 48, verse number 10, Behold, I have refined thee, refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. The fire is not meant to destroy us. It's meant to refine us. Now, as we close today, I want to give us two encouraging thoughts. Uh, would you like two encouraging thoughts as we close today? Number one, God is always with you. Notice it in verse 25. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose. Didn't we throw three guys in there? I see four men walking in the midst of the fire. They were, they were moving around. <laughs> you know, this is definitely one of those stories when we get to heaven, I want to see a replay. Like, what were they doing in there? Were they giving each other high fives? I mean, they were walking around. Like, they're walking around and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, I'm not sure Nebuchadnezzar was well-versed in his Christology. Many people have differing opinions on who this person was. Was it an angel? I believe that this was a theophany. This was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is with them in the fire. You know, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they stood strong, against the culture when they stood in the face of Nebuchadnezzar and says, even if God doesn't deliver us, we're not going to bow down. They didn't know what was going to happen. But here they are in the fire and God was walking with them. When you are in your lowest moment, when you are going through something that nobody else knows about, when you are hurting, when you're broken, when you feel like you're walking through the flames of affliction, just know that he is still with you there. The psalmist said, if I make my bed in hell, he is with me. If I ascend up into heaven, he is with me there. There is nowhere that you can run that you can outrun the love of God and the presence of God. God is always with you, even when you're hurting. But then there's a second encouragement. The fire has no real power. It has no real power. Now it hurts sometimes. Life can be painful. Life can be devastating. Life can be full of tragedy at times. But I want you to know the fire, it has no real power power. Notice it in verse 27. And the princes, the governors, and the captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon, who, upon whose bodies the fire had no power. It didn't work. Nor was a hair of their head singed. Neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Now, I think that's the greatest miracle of the story, that they didn't smell like smoke, because I can't even ham grill a hamburger without smelling like smoke for a couple hours. Uh, they walked in the, in the furnace, and they left, and the smell of the smoke wasn't even on them. The fire had no real power. It can be intimidating. It can be hurtful. But God is in control, and he always has a purpose. Notice verse 28. 
I want to read two final verses this morning and we'll be done. In fact, as I, as I read these verses, I want us to stay focused, but would you join me in standing as we read these closing verses? Verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Uh, now Nebuchadnezzar makes this declaration. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their decision, their stand now is affecting everyone around them. When you take a strong stand in love, you never know how that stand can influence the people at your workplace, in your family, what kind of influence God wants to give you through that stand. Now they're making a difference. Everyone can see it. Notice verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill. Now, this was not something that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wanted. This was not certainly something that they did not request, but as we saw last week, this was something uh, typical in ancient culture. When you wanted to defame someone, that was the process. And so it's not what they wanted, but it's what Nebuchadnezzar did. But there's a last line in that verse that I want to close with. Verse 29, he says, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. There is no other God that can deliver like this. There is no other God that can save, only their God. In fact, in chapter number two, if you saw it in verse number 28, Daniel said, but there is a God, Nebuchadnezzar, he said, there is a God. We ended last week uh, by understanding there is a God. His name is Jesus Christ. And he loves you more than you can ever imagine. There is a God. And now Nebuchadnezzar says, this is the only God that can save. And can I tell you, he was spot on. Because there is only one way to heaven. There is only one way to experience the forgiveness of your sins. There is only one way that you can have a relationship with the creator of the universe. And that is by accepting the gift of God's son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the father but by me. He is the only one that can save. And today, perhaps... You walked into this room, maybe you're new, maybe someone invited you, and maybe you are unsure about your eternal destiny. If you were to die today, would you be delivered from a terrible place called hell? Would you be delivered from the flames like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do you know today that you are saved? Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Daniel, come up here for a second. If Daniel says, jump up here real quick. If Daniel says, hey, I want to give you this Bible. Pastor Matt, happy anniversary, I want to give you this Bible. Thank you so much. That's a great gift. But then if Daniel says, you know, but later today, I really need some help with my lawn. And if you could come over and if you could mow my lawn and if you can help me wash my car, um, you know, then we'll kind of be square this Bible ceases to then be a gift because then I had to work for it. But if Daniel just says, here's this Bible, happy anniversary, no strings attached, that is a gift that I don't earn, I just receive. Thank you, Daniel. That is the gift of salvation. 
many people are caught up doing religious deeds and religious activities because they are trying to earn their way to heaven. They're trying to earn their way to salvation. But that is not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that it is not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It's according to his mercy that he saves us. Nebuchadnezzar said something that is so profound that I want it to leave ringing in our ears today. He says, no other God can deliver like this. No one else can save. Only Jesus Christ is mighty to save. And today could be this day of salvation for anyone that would like to receive that gift. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.